I thought that it would be a good thing for us today to take just a minute and to gain a perspective as to who could benefit from this sermon or message today. We're in Matthew chapter 20 again. You might want to get your Bible and your notes strategically positioned as we study the Word together again today. I was just thinking that if you are a person who has been overlooked at work for promotions and people around you either at a lateral level or even from below you have been uh, chosen instead of you for promotion and you actually feel like you have uh, equal or greater ability and it really bothers you, you need this message. If you are a wife and a mother and you are employed outside of your home, you are very busy. Your life is very full and you find yourself um, regularly upset because with all you have going on, your husband who works out of the home doesn't help around the house with the cooking and the cleaning and the picking up like you do it causes significant rift and frustration, you need this message. And if you're that husband, you need this message. (laughs) If you, on the other hand, are a stay-at-home mom, and you don't work out of the home, and you're stuck in your home, and all you feel like you do is change diapers and pick up toys and wash dishes... Try to be ready for supper when your husband, who doesn't help you very much, comes home. And sometimes you could just scream, you need this message. And maybe you're in mid or upper level management at your work. You employ people or you are responsible for managing people. You need this message. And maybe you've been at it long enough that the People you employ or manage are driving you crazy. You need this message. Now, it's possible with all the kids who are here that there's a kid who's like the oldest kid of this. Of, I'm talking kids at home and you're the oldest. And you can prove that your mom and dad ask you to do more around the house and to help with the other kids than all of the others. And it's not fair. You need this message. It is also possible, as we just kind of poke around and think about this a little bit, that you've been praying for a job that is better than the one you have. And maybe you're even stuck in in a, a service level job. All work is honorable. All honest work is honorable. I'm not belittling any work. But you would love to be advancing up in pay and rank and you find yourself stuck at service level jobs. I'm talking I'm talking serving, clearing tables, washing dishes, washing, scrubbing floors, cleaning toilets. And God just doesn't seem to answer your prayer and you really do not enjoy your work. You need this message. It occurred to me, even as I was preaching this morning, I need another category here for pastors. (laughs) Pastors who have churches that have woods and day camps. 
Pastors who walk their dogs in that woods after events and equipment's not put away. That pastor needs this message. We're in Matthew chapter 20 and I was struck with the profundity of this message. What a profound teaching we are going to receive from our Lord Jesus today. It is not new. You will have heard this passage before if you are, uh, have been around church world very long at all. You know, even as I was challenging the men at the retreat over the weekend, it's really not new material that we need so much as it is to live out what we already know to do, right? And, and it is a profound teaching, though, and yet it is very, very practical. It should impact immediately our daily living as we let the Word of God conform us to the image of the Son of God. Well, let's turn to Matthew 20. Let's read our text. We're going to pick it up at Matthew 20, 20, and read through verse 28. And uh, I trust if your notes are handy, a pen handy, that you'll benefit from tracking along, engaging your mind. Let's read God's Word together. You listen, I will read, and you follow along. And then, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Matthew twenty twenty. the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, with her sons, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, but Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Wow. Well, the first thing I observe when I open this passage is letter A in our notes, and it is, it is this unbelievable moment with this unbelievable mother. And it's not that I don't believe it happened, but it's like, can you believe she did this? These are the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They are strong, capable men. And they've got mommy going up to Jesus to ask for a promotion. Uh, it is interesting to observe in Mark uh, chapter 10, by the way, go ahead and flip there to Mark chapter 10 to the parallel account. And, and I want you to notice a detail here. Mark records this just a little bit differently. And the passages do not contradict themselves. You put them together uh, to gain the most information and uh, to understand this, the landscape of what's happening here. Mark chapter 10, and this is uh, chap, uh, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 35 through 41 is Mark's account in the Synoptic Gospels. And it says here, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask of you. <laughs> hey, Dad. 
Would you, would you, I want to ask you a question. Are you, would you, would you say yes? And Jesus says, well, what are you going to ask me? Um, I think he already knew. But what's interesting to me is that Mark does not record that they engage their mother in the process. And I think if you put the two together, and we're back at Matthew 20, it seems to me that the, the men had a scheme and they decided to work all the leverage they could come up with to open the door of opportunity. And I kind of find that interesting. One of the things we need to understand, the first bullet point, is that this whole scenario is taking place because it's a throwback to chapter 19, verse 28, once again. And th this question that Peter asked Jesus and then Jesus answers it spawned all of chapter 20 coming out of chapter 19. Look what it says. Um, Peter says, see, in verse 27, we've left everything to follow you. And, and what then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, verse 28 of chapter 19 of Matthew, truly, I say to you in the new world or in the regeneration. And I believe this is probably most likely to be understood as the millennial kingdom, a literal thousand year reign of Christ. When the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me, and I think he's person, personally, I understand this to be speaking specifically to the twelve. You who have followed me and uh, will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to set up my throne. I'm going to set up 12 thrones and we're going to rule together. You're going to be part of my, my court here. And I think that that is just reverberating in the minds of the disciples to the degree that they have been thinking about that. And I think that is directly where the question from 2020 comes from, where they say, when you set up your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand on your left? You see, we know there's going to be 12 thrones, but we got to thinking about which one was going to be mine. And I got to thinking that if nobody else asked for it and I got in line first, maybe I could be your right-hand man, Jesus. I really like the image of me sitting up there at the right hand. You know, I know it's the, it's, it's the first one in second place, but I'll settle for that. And there's their minds working. And Jesus is taking this in, and there's a teachable moment here for sure. One of the other things I think that you need to understand is that this is very likely a family favor. This is a favor for a family member. It's for family. And here's how we put that together. I put in parentheses there that, that Salome, who is at the cross with our Lord, is likely the sister of Mary. It's likely Salome. If you, if you look at those references, and you don't have to do it now, and put it together, there is reason to believe that with some level of confidence, you can conclude that these women at the cross, and it names them, and one is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's, it's most likely to conclude that that is Salome. And so therefore, this is Jesus anti-Salome. And Auntie Salome comes and gets on her knees. Now, I don't think she's worshiping. I think this whole thing is a setup. I think the whole thing is posturing. And the boys are in on it and they've asked their mom, Mom, you're his aunt. Go ask him, we're his first cousins. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, would be first cousins of our Lord. It's a little bit of that situation where it's not who you know, it's who knows you. 
that opens up doors, man, and you got to work this thing. So here's the mindset that's, that's being generated, and I think you need to also understand that this is, a, this, this is a systemic issue with the disciples. It's systemic. They are having a problem with infighting as to who's going to be the greatest among them. I mean, we're going to reference it in a minute. In chapter 18, verse 1, they ask that question. But if you took the time to look up Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and you don't have to look there, they were walking down a road, they come to a house, and there when they go in the house, Jesus turns and looks at them and says, hey, um, what were you guys talking about on the road? And it gets real quiet in the house. Uh, How many of you would raise your hand and say that Jesus already knew what they were talking about? (laughs) Jesus gets in the house with them and says, Hey, uh, by the way, guys, what were you talking about? It gets real quiet. Nobody wants to speak up because it says they were arguing. They were arguing and it says they were arguing. Imagine this grown men walking down the road, trash talking each other, arguing about who's the greatest. Who do you think you know, man? And I can see him kind of punching elbows at each other and and then and then just the way men will kind of trash talk when women aren't around, putting them down, man. You're you know, your mama wears combat boots, man. My daddy can beat your daddy. Who do you think you are? Oh, just at it. It's embarrassing. They didn't want to speak up. And it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. In this in the passage, it uses the word that they were, they were disputing, they were fighting, there was schism, they were divided, and they were divided over who's the greatest? Who's the most important among us? I mean, aren't you embarrassed for them? I would never think like that myself. Would you? <laughs> what happens next, in my opinion, is a very uncomfortable moment. It's a very uncomfortable moment because you can see the setup for this whole thing. It's, it's disingenuous all the way. I do not believe it's pure in its motive. They were sincere. They really wanted to sit in those thrones, but they were not righteous in their motivation. They were fleshly. They were carnal. They were of the mindset of the world. I have, a, I have an opportunity to climb the ladder and I'm not going to miss it. And we're first cousins, so we deserve it. And, and look what Jesus, how he responds. Notice what happens. He says to her, what do you want? And she tells him, say that these two sons of mine, verse 21, may sit on your right and on your left in the kingdom. Mark says that they asked too, so they're all piping in evidently. And then Jesus answered, and here's where the, the discomfort began. Jesus just looks at him and he says, you don't have any idea what you're asking. And I suspect it gets real quiet real fast. And they realized from his tone and from his language, this was not a good plan. And they're wishing there was some way to exit back out of there. You don't know what you're talking about. You, you don't even know what you're asking. The second thing he does is he, as he so masterfully does on a regular basis, he asks a question in the process of answering their question. And he looks at them and he says, are you able to drink from the cup of which I will drink? And they very quickly, proudfully, boastfully say, yes, Lord, we are able. We are able to drink from that cup. 
He's talking about, it's an Old Testament reference that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the cup. It's a, it's a word picture. The cup of suffering. This is a good time for us to note that I skipped over a section that we haven't covered in chapter 20 yet. And it begins with verse 17. Take a look at your Bible. Chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve uh, disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. So listen, we, I know we have a number of chapters and a lot of material in Matthew yet, but we're heading to the cross. And, and we're not very far now. Most of the earthly ministry time of our Lord is used up. This is the third time now that he's saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and to be flogged, and to be crucified, and to be then raised on the third day. He said this three times, and every time it's just... <laughs> Evidently, based upon the way it's recorded in the Gospels, none of them even respond to this. They're either not listening, they don't get it, or they're not paying attention, or they're already thinking about who the greatest in the kingdom. Nobody responds to this. And our Lord is saying, look, they're going to take me down there. The Roman soldiers are going to flog me. They're going to bear my the rib cage on my back with their cat of nine tails embedded with lead and iron and bone. They're going to rip the flesh off my body. They're going to pierce my hands. They're going to hang me on a cross. They're going to stick me in the side. Are you ready to drink from that cup? Oh, Lord, we are able. It's a lot like Peter, right? Peter's when the Lord uh, coming up, Peter says, um, you're going to deny me uh, three times before the rooster crows. <laughs> Not me, Lord. You're mistaken. Always be careful when you look at Jesus and say you're wrong. Not me, Lord. I will never deny you. Never, ever. Not me. Maybe those, those wimpy disciples, but not this tough disciple. And just a matter of hours later, the little girl speaks up and says, you're one of those with Jesus. And he curses and denies and denies his Lord well-intentioned they were, they had no idea what they were talking about, did they? And I'm thinking that they're starting to understand that the Lord is speaking about things that are much deeper than what they are uh, bargaining for. And they're wishing there was some way to exit out of this. You will drink my cup. It's the cup of suffering. And in fact, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, you can turn there later, it tells us as the early church is being established that James, most likely this James, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, one of the sons of thunder, they were evidently strong, loudmouthed guys, was the f one of the first disciples then to drink from that cup of suffering as Herod's sword took his head off. Now I've wondered if uh, James, preaching the gospel, by Acts chapter 12, completely emboldened by the reality of the resurrection, by his confidence in the deity of Christ, by the ongoing ministry of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, preaching without doubt, complete confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now his hands are tied, his head is bent forward. Out of the corner of his eye, 
He has that nanosecond of acknowledgement where he can process just for a second the reality that the sword is coming and it's on its way. It's in the air. It's a nanosecond flash. And he's thinking to himself, that sword will hit my neck. That sword is going to kill me. It is over. And I wonder if he thought it's the cup of suffering. Here's the cup of suffering. Because Jesus looked at him and in a prophetic way, in a prophetic way, Jesus said, you will indeed drink from that cup. He goes on to say then that to sit at my right and my left isn't up to me. That's the sovereign appointment of my heavenly father. In other words, stop worrying about it. We'll let God do what he wants and how he wants. But Jesus knows he's got a very teachable moment now. And now he points out to them a very unacceptable mindset. It is the mindset of understanding greatness or, or uh, leadership, greatness, importance, according to this world, not his kingdom. Remember, everything about Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Everything about Jesus' kingdom is backwards. He's talking about how they understand how things work in this world but not in my kingdom. And look what he says. He said, we'll let the Father appoint what's been prepared for whomever. And then verse 24, we see even more discomfort. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So they start being, you know, shocked and appalled and indignant and angry at them, really because they didn't think to get their mama to go ask Jesus for an appointment. In verse 25, but Jesus called to them, called them to him. Teachable moment. Come here, guys. Listen to me. I want to point out to you the unacceptable mindset of the world. You know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, as we talk about this world and what is in our hard drive to understand how how this works to climb the ladder and what makes somebody important, the first thing he points out is position. Obviously, importance is about the position. That's why the right and the left matter. He says the rulers of the Gentiles, those in a position of leadership. That's what we're looking for. The office here. That was what the nameplate on the door, the big oak uh, name thing on my desk. Whipping out a business card with the office on it. It's the position, the rulers of the Gentiles. Because when you have the position, you are then able, he says, to lord it over. That's the power. You're the power player then, and that's what you want. You want the power. You want to say jump, and you want everybody around you to say how high on the way up. It's the power, the power monger. So I'm important. Because that's how the great ones, the famous people, the great ones, that's prestige, isn't it? That's prestige. Everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows your name. Everybody sees your name on the airplane. They see the big black limousines. They see the security detail around you. You are as important as they come. Nobody's more important than that. And I want to be as close to that as I can. Kiss the ring. Drink the Kool-Aid. Be a part of this. You're right. You're left. So that people will look at me and think, pretty cool. Pretty hot stuff. And look what Jesus says. 
Well, he, he adds that the idea there in our, our mindset is that they're people who have servants. They're not people who serve. That's privilege. That's privilege. So if you define importance and greatness by the world's standards, position, power, prestige, privilege. And Jesus says in verse 26, look what he says. I think it's really quiet among the guys now. It shall not be so among you. This is not how it works. This is not my way. It shall not be so among you. No more of this talk. That's not how it is. And he then presents what is, it has to be to the disciples, a most unthinkable model of greatness. It has to be a most unthinkable. You see, he's now going to tell them that if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant and a slave. This is a fundamental realignment of everything that they understand about greatness. Now, we don't relate to this super well because though we know something about slavery from our history, we don't see it in our society. We wish we could obliterate that chapter of our history. We can't understand our founding fathers allowing that kind of system to be in place. We would never allow it in our homes or community. We, we are shocked and appalled. It's heinous. We, we don't see it in our culture. It's just not that way. But in this culture, on this day, when Jesus is talking to these disciples, all they had to do is pick up their head and look down the sidewalk, and they would see any number of servants and slaves, people who were owned by other people, who were the bottom of the social ladder, who had no rights. So it was a shocking statement. It's a, it's a fundamental realignment of everything that they've been hardwired to know, everything that they've observed. There is no model like this, Jesus. There is nobody that would teach this. And Jesus says in the middle of, in the middle of all the position, power, prestige, and privilege, that's not how it is for me. Here's how it is. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The interesting thing is that the first word that he uses there is servant. Whoever would be great is a servant, equals a servant. And that is the word, a Greek word that sounds something like this, diakonos. Diakonos. It has the idea embedded in the root of its meaning that you are one who waits on tables or washes the dishes or scrubs the floor. It is, it is uh, okay to translate this word minister. We translate it in our New Testament for deacon in the local church. They are to be ministers or waiting on tables in the local church. They are to be serving the basic needs of people in the churches. He's not talking about deacons in the church here, though. He's talking about a word that they would have understood that would have been the low man on the totem pole of acceptable work. These are people that likely got paid and had some control over their lives, but they were the serving staff. They were employees and they got paid for what they did and they had some decision-making ability in their own lives. He then goes on and he says, you've got to be this diakonos, one who waits on tables. I've watched them do that in restaurants. I've never had to do that job. Now I've 
shoveled a lot of manure in a dairy barn. Um, I never thought that was quite as gross as handling food that people have eaten and left on their plates and blowing their nose in a napkin and putting it on a plate. And then they come in and they're gathering this stuff up and, and your job is to just pick up the slop. You want to be great in my kingdom? You're the slop bucket guy. Not only that, he says, you have to be a slave. And here he uses the word doulos. It's a bondservant. It is a person without rights. It is a person owned by another. It is a person who has no decision-making ability on their own. They have a master and they do what the master says. Anytime the master says it, even if they've already gone to bed, whatever, the master snaps his fingers. He gets up, empty this honey bucket, get it out of here. You don't know what a honey bucket is? Google it. You're the slop bucket person. You're the toilet emptier. And then he says, and I have a model for you. You do this in the same way that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Referencing that he died on the cross for all who would believe. You think about that. You know who we're talking about here, right? The one who is eternally, everlastingly in existence as part of the Godhead before Genesis 1-1, who spoke the worlds into existence, who all things were made by him and for him. This is the king of the universe. This is the master of the universe. This is the one who sat at the right hand of the father. This is the one who, when the father loved the world so much that he wanted to give his son Yielded over Philippians chapter 2 his rights and he came to earth, but he's the king of the universe. And he says, he calls himself, uh, I became a, a, a son of man. It's a humiliating name. It is the most humble name that you can use to reference Jesus. And it was most commonly used by himself. I am the son of man. He gestated in the womb of a little Middle Eastern girl. The king did. The one who is without limits. The one who has all power. The one who knows everything. The one for which all things exist. The one to whom all service is due. Became the son of a human. That is a picture of humility. Don't argue about which chair you're going to sit in. You just be a diakonos doulos. Hmm. So how do we apply this? I think it clearly illustrates how easy it is not to listen to Jesus. When you read this story, you have to acknowledge that this is a conversation that has been going on and on. And if you turn back to chapter 18, for example, verse 1, just flip the page. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Reading between the lines, wouldn't you say me, Jesus? Don't you think it's probably me? 
Let's have a conversation here and let me get elevated in front of all my peers here because surely I'm number one. And Jesus then picks up an infant child, gathers the disciples, brings the baby on his lap and says, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That kind of humility. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He has already showed them the model of greatness in his kingdom. And it's a child. They're not listening. They're just not listening. I'm embarrassed for them. How could they not listen to Jesus? It clearly exposes then, number two, how proud our hearts are, right? How proud our hearts are. Because when you hear this, you say, okay, I get it, man. I hear Jesus. I'm not like the disciples. I listen to Jesus. I hear Jesus. I know that. I know this. I would do this, but I'm, I'm really busy right now. I can't pick that stuff up. Listen, everything in us, like the disciples, is hardwired for greatness according to the world system. It is not in us to yield our rights. It is not in us to defer to the other person. Now I walk in the bathroom, and there's paper towel scraps on the floor. And I think to myself, kids. And the next thought I think is, somebody ought to pick that up. How about you? It's not my job. Wait a minute. You spilled it. You clean it up. You got it out. You put it away. And I know that these are character lessons that we are trying to build into our children. But you think about how we respond when you didn't spill it. You didn't get it out. It's not your stuff. And it's left up to you to put it away. What's wrong with that man? There's a hamper right there and he leaves his socks right there. Is he blind? He's probably just lazy. He probably just thinks I'm his slave. Hmm. Maybe you are. But shame on him. Demonstrates once again, doesn't it? The backwards nature of the teaching of Christ. The backwards nature of the teaching of Christ. Everything's opposite. On the way out this morning, Darren Hardy, who's recently become employed by Delta Airlines, he said, PV, it was really interesting to listen to your message today. He said, said embedded in the... In the uh, basic uh, tenets of Delta Airlines. I'm missing the right words right now. Some of you know this stuff, but in the core values, and the core values of our company is servant leadership. I recognize for years, Stephen Covey with uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, every single one of those principles come from the Word of God. He's a Mormon, but he understood that what Jesus taught works. But I want to tell you something. It will only work for about 15 minutes or 15 days if you're trying to muster this up on your own. And then you will have had enough again. And it occurs to me as we conclude this morning, what would it be like? What would it be like if we really did hear what Jesus is teaching here today and we listen and we build it into our lives? What would it mean for our church if we became a group of doulos, diakonos, servant slaves, 
who really esteemed others higher than ourselves, who really didn't worry about who got it out and who's putting it away. And our job was to serve my brother and serve my sister and serve my church with joy and gladness as a reflection of the servanthood of Jesus Christ that is a result of my sanctification that springs out of my salvation in Christ and the transformation that has gone on of what I used to be and what I am now. What would happen in our homes if a husband and wife began to be slaves to one another in this spiritual sense? And we really did esteem others higher than ourselves. And we really didn't point out that they did it again. And I keep telling you, and I don't know why you don't get it. Do I have to do it myself? Yeah. Shut up and do it yourself. And see what happens in your heart. And see where the pride wells up. And then let God break your heart and be ashamed of that kind of pride. What would it be like if we had great joy and delight as we served one another? As we bumped our heads together, bending over to reach, to put it away. Now let's just stand in closing prayer. Maybe before I pray, it's a good time for you to examine your hearts. Are you listening to Jesus? This is what he taught. And remember, the whole model of greatness, he said, this shall not be true among you. And he's speaking to us. This is not allowed in this place. Power, prestige, position. We don't do it that way here. I think some of you men... You need to ask God for forgiveness today and you need to learn how to serve your wife and your children. Stop acting like the king of the roost. And some of you women, you need to ask God, you wives, you need to ask God for forgiveness for the bitterness that you have stored up towards your husband. You need to ask God to restore a Christ-like love and become a slop pot do loss and see what God begins to do. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not reflecting the image of Christ in this marvelous way. Forgive us for being so embedded in this world and so stuck in the ways of this world that we don't even hear what Jesus is saying. And we're embarrassed to live it out because no one else is like this. And it's weird. And it doesn't fit the pattern of this world. So help us to become transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may know and do and live out your perfect Christ-like will that is good and pleasing and perfect. Change our homes, change our churches, change our ability to serve people all around us, even in our neighborhood. That that we would find great delight and satisfaction in just being your doulos. 
Thank you for Christ's model and his willingness to go to the cross with our sinfulness that we can have that kind of transformation power. In Jesus' name.